Head over to StuDoesMerch.com for the best in conservative merchandise. Use the promo code Stu10 to save 10%. If you're watching on YouTube, well, like the video right now. Subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. Do all the things you're supposed to do as a wonderful member of a podcast audience. We've got a very special show for you today. I'm going to be talking uh, to Steve Krakauer and taking a deep dive into the sorry state of our failed media. An extended interview with Steve today as we do the media uncovered. And, you know, we talk a lot about the media on this show. And I think conservatives in general are fascinated by the media, largely because we just are so angry about it all the time. And that's understandable. You are justified in your anger. It's a real problem because a lot of times you get a situation where a false narrative is carried over to millions and millions of people. And then you're the one stuck dealing with them at work. You're the one du- stuck dealing with them on your like family's email list. You're just like some one of your crazy relatives. Blah, blah, blah. Why isn't everyone wearing masks? Blah, I got it. That affects our lives and it gets annoying. But the media, of course, is a really important part of our country. You know, one of the strengths of this country, as you compare it to, um, you know, uh, communist dictatorships, is a media that can actually say things critical of the government. From the mainstream media, that seems to be happening less and less, though. And that's a real problem. At least it's less and less when it's on one side of the aisle. When it's the other side of the aisle, I don't know if there's ever been more criticism uh, of the government. Um, so today what we're going to try to do is not only get you a graduate university, but we're going to get you an MD in media failure. How did all this happen? When did it start? What were the main incidents that tell the story as to what's happened with the media, particularly over the past, I don't know, eight, eight years or so? It's probably the, the, the window, although it goes a little bit before that as well, I think. It was a slow problem that grew and grew and grew over time and has just kicked into high gear over the past eight years and even higher gear over the past three years. What has happened to the media? Why has it happened? Is there anything we can actually do to save it? Is this a train that can possibly be stopped and reversed? Can we turn this giant cruise ship that's heading toward the beach when there's a bunch of kindergartners on the beach swimming? They're about to get run over by this giant cruise liner. Is there any hope to turn it around before catastrophe gets even worse than it already is? We're going to talk to Steve Krakauer. The book is called Uncovered. I think you're really going to like the book. I highly recommend you going out and picking it up. He goes through really every major media controversy you can remember and and goes through it with with like a scalpel to show you exactly how it happened, who was right, who was wrong, and how we can improve it. Uh, The book is Uncovered. It's available wherever books are are sold. We're going to get to Steve here in just a second. Sit tight. Consider this a public service announcement. Manscaped now has beard products. Yes, it's going even further as well with their brand new brand new Weed Whacker 2.0. Now go ahead, tell the world. The leaders in below-the-waist grooming are traveling north of the border. Mm-hmm. They've got revolutionary grooming products. You probably already know that. They've got the Weed Whacker 2.0 and their brand new beard line. It confirms they've got the best tool for your hygiene box. And that means it's time to upgrade your game by going to manscaped.com and use the promo code STU20. You get 20% off plus free shipping. 
It's the Beard Hedger Pro Kit, and it kind of has everything you need. It starts with the cordless electric beard hedger, which is tough on hair but smooth on your face. Add that to Manscaped Beard Shampoo and Conditioner, Beard Oil, and Beard Balm. Plus, three free gifts, a beard brush, a comb, and scissors. It's everything you could possibly want when it comes to beard care, and it's all wrapped up into a great, a great and affordable kit, which makes a fantastic gift for somebody who you know has a beard. Get 20% off with free shipping with the code STEW20 at manscaped.com. It's 20% off with free shipping, manscaped.com. Use the code STEW20 at manscaped.com. Always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. I'm joined now by Steve Krakauer. He's the editor of Fourth Watch Media and the author of the new book, Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. It's available now wherever you get your books. I highly encourage you to go out and get it. Steve, thanks for coming on. Stu, thanks for having me. Um, let me start with this. You start, you, you, in the book, you have a ton of interviews with people all over the media spectrum. Uh, really, you know, everybody who's anybody. Uh, it's, really, it's really a great collection. I will say, um, you've been talking about it with saying that you have no one who's off the record. However, you do have one person who's off the record. You identified in the book the one time you gr granted anonymity. Right. Unburden yourself now and tell us who it is. Uh, no, ah. I don't think I can. I don't think I can do that. Yes, the only person <laughs> off the record in the book is an email exchange I had long before I wrote the book. This was in in 2013. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I thought uh, if I led with that, I might pressure you into doing it. It was just like catch me off guard. News, yeah, and, yeah. No, no, I can't. I cannot reveal. Why did that you? Source. Why did you decide to do it this way? The why? Why every media book that I read has a million off the record sources. They're all taking snipes at each other. And why didn't you go that direction? Yeah, media books. Uh, uh, you know, newspaper articles, blog posts, you know, TV, uh, Chiron, source, this, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. nonstop. And I honestly think it's one of the reasons that people have lost so much trust in the media mm -hmm. is because so often the media grants anonymity for no reason. Really, I mean, they, they, the amount of anonymous sources we see now, I get in certain instances, they might, there might be retaliation sure. and backlash. Okay, so that's where you grant it. But they, they, I mean, they, literally, they, we, we see, especially in media reporting now, this source says, and then just like some slam of someone else. It, it's completely ridiculous. So I said, you know, I'm going to go out and do this. I had a list of 80 people or so I, I wanted to contact to try to, to talk to. And there, it, did, it was a lot of give and take. A lot of people in the book who were willing to talk off the record or on, on background, but not put their name to it. Um, some people I was able to convince to go on the record. Um, but, it, but it did take some convincing. and It was important to me. So it ended up being 26 people on the record, most of which you could actually hear in their context in the audiobook as mm. well. All of the, the comments I all of the conversations were recorded. So everyone from Tucker Carlson to reporters from the New York Times, MSNBC hosts, Washington Post columnists, everyone on the record. Uh, you can, you know, they put their name, their, their name to it and, and what they say. Yeah, it was interesting because, you know, you, you come at this with an independent spirit, I think. Like, I want to understand what this problem is and how, how we can make it better, which is great. Um, and you really do hit everybody across the spectrum. And I was surprised to see some of the people, you know, people talking from MSNBC, who sounded a lot like I do, right. you know what I mean? Like people, is it, is it widespread within the media? They understand that these problems are real? No, I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. I, I think that it's, there's actually, there, there are certain people at certain outlets that do. And, and a lot of times from honestly writing Fourth Watch over the last three years, I've gotten to know the people, frankly, that read the newsletter, that respond sure. most of the time in DMs and in emails mm -hmm. and don't go on the record about it. But they do understand that there's real problems there. Um, you know, I think about people like David Folkenflik at NPR or Eric Wemple at the Washington Post 
most. People, I don't necessarily know their politics, but I can probably make a guess on what they are. But they're in the industry, they care about the industry, and they see the problems. They see what happens when Chris Cuomo hosts Andrew Cuomo on his show and what that does, and then that, the way that that story metastasizes, or Joy Reid's blog. You know, stories yeah. that most of the media actually won't even touch still, but they're the kind of people that even within their organizations, even within the larger media ecosystem, I mean, Full Conflict, one of the few to really go at the Jeffrey Epstein story, which I, which I write about in the book, um, there are certain people in that, in, in really all the newsrooms, but they're so often overshadowed by the loudest voices who don't have any introspection, who are not interested in finding out how to reconnect with a, a broader audience. So I, I think they're there, but they're, they're not the most prominent voices and there's not that many of them. You brought up the Joy Reid thing, which is something I wanted to touch on you with. Because yeah. these, are, these are, some of these stories, you know, you see maybe a left-wing perspective that I might not agree with, and okay, like I can understand maybe how this, this went down. The Joy Reid thing is so blatantly a, an, an example of media, I would argue corruption, right? right? Where, uh, you know, maybe you could walk us through the story for yeah. people who don't remember it, but this is a high profile person who has not been held responsible. You tried to hold her responsible and uh, it was a tough road. It was, yeah. The Joy Reads, you're right. Very few people I think even, even remember this because of how little consequences Joy Reid faced for it. But you would think going back, the, the idea of, okay, we're gonna go back and look at old tweets or old blog posts. This is something that happens a lot. Right about another example where uh, a, a young journalist uh, got hired as the editor of Teen Vogue, Alexi McCammon, oh, yeah, yeah. and they went and dug up old tweets of hers when, from when she was 17 years old, sort of anti-Asian sentiment, and they were able to force her out of the job before she even got started. Joy Reid, a blog that she had written, uh, which was called The Reid Report, which was, which was just like her show was at one point uh, on MSNBC, had ho- blatantly homophobic uh, blog posts anti-Islamic blog posts. And not really arguable ones. These weren't like, oh, there's a controversy on whether she meant X, Y, or Z. These were like straight out slurs at yes. times. I mean, this was this was saying that, that gay men have a propensity to be attracted to underage men, underage boys. Right. I mean, this was like, <laughs> that was just in the blog post. You know, I'm grossed out by men kissing, things like that. <laughs> Which I, I have to say, I'm kind of the person who doesn't like to cancel people. Right. I, I, I don't really think people should lose their jobs over what they've done, written in the past or anything. But this is what the tactic was. So Joy Reid, because she was a liberal, that was she was given that, that you know, rope, I guess, to, mm-hmm. to be able to say these sorts of things. And then she claimed that it was hacked, right. that her blog was hacked. She didn't yes. write these things. No, no, no. Someone Some, else did. Right. The Anthony so, Weiner defense. Exactly, mm-hmm. yes, which which obviously is, is completely <laughs> untrue. No evidence for it. She even said, or through her lawyer, that the FBI was investigating it. They'd opened a case about this. They were really going to get to the yeah. bottom of this one. And then, then that was pretty much the end of it. Um, and later, even more blog posts were uncovered because this was all deleted. And so it had to go back and really try to find this through the Wayback Machine and all mm-hmm. of this. And so ultimately MSNBC, she sort of apologized for some of these blog posts, but still maintained that, that there might have been hacking involved. And then it was gone. And it, if anything, she has only gotten promoted since then. I mean, literally every single job that she's gotten since, everything, every single thing in her career has been on the upswing. Um, and she, she has not stopped from send, saying incendiary things, but they're only aimed in a certain direction now. Yeah. And, and that, of course, saves her. Uh, and it is a good example, I think, of, of just a moment in time where people that may have even seen these sorts of stories, may, first of all, maybe they're, they're left with thinking that, oh, man, someone, someone hacked Joy Reid's blog. That's horrible. That's one thing. But at the very least, there's no curiosity in the press. We know why. But they protected her 
in this in, in a way that they never would have if it was a different person. Yeah, I mean, they, they wouldn't respond to your question asking for comment. What happened with the FBI investigation? No, Nothing. no, no comment from the lawyer, no comment from Joy, no comment from MSNBC. It's <sighs> remarkable. Um, and uh, and even in, in kind of rehashing this with people like Wemple and David Fulkenflick, who who did talk to me about it for the book, even they were saying, you know, it's, it's funny, maybe we should really dig back into this. Yeah. Like, there's, well, <laughs> yeah. I wonder why MSNBC <laughs> won't even address this. You know, they, they, it's, it's just gone. It's yeah. just something that's just gone now. Mm. Um, you go through, obviously you talk to some people who I think are really smart voices within the media throughout the book, um, but you, you make a distinction between, you know, maybe some of those people and the Acela media. And yeah. Acela media, that's a term that gets kind of thrown around a lot. W- what does it mean to you? Yeah, so the Acela media is is sort of the corporate press that's largely based in New York City and D.C. And the Acela, it's, it refers to this train, the Acela corridor, that just, it's, it's, a, it's a constant mode of transportation for people in the media. It's something that I used to take all the time when I was at CNN. I would go, you know, you'd go from one New York bureau to the D.C. bureau and back. And it, it's important to me as a, as a symbol also because when you take the Acela, and frankly, I did it last week because I was doing interviews in New York and in yeah. D.C., and so there I go. Sure. i got to go take the Acela. <laughs> You're part of the problem. I know. I know. I felt like such a, <laughs> such a fraud by doing it, but I was like, I'm, this is research. Yes, yeah, so there you go. <laughs> um, but it's, it just, it's a good reminder because you go through cities in New Jersey and through Baltimore, and you, and you just fly by. I mean, it, the, one of the big conceits of the Acela is you don't do all the local stops. Right. You just do the big stops. Mm-hmm. And, and so even in that area, even in the Northeast, you have areas that are still being ignored by the broader corporate press. Um, and, and obviously the rest of the country is being ignored as well, but it's so laser focused on the bubbles that, that are in D.C. and New York, the group think that emerges from there. And, and it's really a problem. And I think it's only gotten worse, frankly, since COVID uh, and, and the lack of curiosity to get outside of that Acela corridor. Yeah, it's funny because when I lived in the area, the Acela didn't even stop in Trenton, New Jersey, right. the capital right. of a state, right? Chris Christie at the time was the big, you know, one of the big politicians and like, you know, they wouldn't even stop there for him. Right. I mean, it, it really is, uh, it's a fascinating thing and it does separate you. You just zoom right by, there's no perspective at all. Um, you had a, a really interesting analogy on uh, how people have become disconnected to the media that I thought was really interesting. And it was about how, um, get, guessing the temperature. Oh, you yeah. Remember this? Yeah, the temperature G- test. Yeah, the temperature test. Can you kind of walk people through this? This is a really interesting thing. And I think it really summarizes how this sort of large chasm has been has been created over the years. Yeah, thanks. This was this was really one of the first things I write about in the book. And it's something that I, I don't even remember the topic at the time, but it was I remember it was 2017, 2018, around that time frame, some crazy story about Trump that was being, you know, wall to wall on CNN and MSNBC that obviously turned out to not be much of anything, you know, single sourced and they went went with it forever. And it was just so out of touch with what the normal person that I would interact with would even care about or think about. And and it got me thinking of this, and I wrote about it at the time also, but where imagine that you're in a, a foreign place and you just happen to be watching a newscast that is telling you the, the temperature of, of exactly where you are. You just were outside. You're like, all right, it feels like maybe 72 degrees. You go back inside. How far away from that, what you feel, could you accept that is actually true. Like so the weatherman's giving you a temperature. Yeah. If he How- says like, you know, 78, okay, you know, I could, I'm, I'm not really from around here, 78, 72, I, I understand temperature, but it's not, so I still trust him, right? 78, 81, you know, 65, like at what point can you do it? What if the guy on the TV, the supposed expert, says it's 37 degrees out? Right. And you're like, we're talking Fahrenheit, just making sure, <laughs> yes, 37 degrees out. And you're, at that point, you're like, not only is this person wrong, 
I don't trust anything this person mm -hmm. says anymore. And, and, and that's, I, th I think, kind of what happened with the media is by being so far out of touch, you, you, they end up destroying the credibility on everything, even the things that they're not telling the, a, a lie or spin or exaggeration about. But it's just so far away from what the average person feels that that person feels even stronger about their own convictions, about, no, no, it's 72 exactly. Now, now, you don't, now I have no, I'm not, I have no like, ability to even reason with you anymore. Right. I'm, I'm going to believe exactly what I believe because they're so far out of touch. Yeah, and there's this idea that, well, the experts are telling us it's 72 degrees. I don't care right. you know, what, what you say. Or the experts are telling us it's 37 degrees. You get more locked into your temperature, and the people who are supporting the experts, the media, get more locked into their temperature. And then there's this bizarre argument when, when there's supposedly a factual basis behind this as to whether it's 72 degrees or 37 degrees, that there's no way you'd build a civilization like the one we're trying to build here like, like that. No, no. And I, I feel like you, it's, it, it really showed itself a lot with COVID also. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think about this all, also a lot, especially now. Um, I was just, like I said, I was just in New York. And it, the, the amount of people that are still wearing like N95 type masks while walking around outside, outside. in New York is really alarming. And I, I look, people can do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. You know, even here in Texas, people inside wear masks, and whatever, you know, do what you want to do. But at some point, like th there's just a total reality shift that happens. And also, I'm someone who generally I think is I'm all for kind of moderation. I also think that most people have not massively changed through COVID, but a lot of people... I mean, but some people really have, yeah, and, and yeah. like forever. And, and I think about this also in the way people think about the media and the people that, that spun them these stories during COVID and, and just the total lack of, of ability to, to reason and to find a factual basis or at least even acknowledge that things are complicated and nuanced and we need to, to take, a, take this on from all angles. And you could go right on down the line from masks to lockdowns to vaccines, everything. You know, there, there was just such a, a lack of, of, I think, trust from the media in the public to understand that these things are complicated. And so they're just gonna, we're gonna just gonna say, this is the way it is, even if we know it's really not the way it is, as mm. we now know from some of the quote unquote experts, that realization, I think by a lot of people, is going to, to have massive long-term ramifications in the way they think about the media. Yeah, I remember reading, I think it was maybe the end of 2020 or so, in the New York Times, uh, a quote, and I'm paraphrasing, but it said, there has never been an ins a reported instance, a documented instance of outdoor transmission of COVID-19 outside of close conversa conversation. This is in the New York Times. Yeah. It's not just me saying it. I'm like, maybe this will be the thing that changed. No, there's still people outside with their children right. in masks walking around outside around no one else. It really is fascinating. I want to get more into COVID. I want to get into the, how the Trump era, I think, changed this. I think there was a big change there. I want to get into that as well here just in a second. We're talking to Steve Krakauer. The book is uncovered. Go get it. Back in a second. We're back with Steve Krakauer. We're talking about his new book, Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. Um, you mentioned the Trump part of this, and I, I think this is a fascinating turning point. Uh, you, you lead the book with, uh, with the Hunter Biden uh, situation, and I, I think like, that was really um, a, 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 uh, an illustration of this turning point. Where Let me throw this theory at you. You tell me yeah. where I'm wrong. 2016, the election happens. Uh, somehow Donald Trump wins. They come up with a million excuses as to why it occurred. 
And most of them were Russia or whatever else they came up with. But one I think was really central, particularly to media figures, was we made a mistake by overcovering Hillary Clinton's emails. We made the mistake by giving credence to these wild theories that the right wanted to talk about. We made Hillary answer for them. That was our fault. We can't do that again. And then you get to 2020, and they obviously see Donald Trump as Satan. Right. And so like he can't be back in. And they change perspectives. It's like a, it was a, I mean, it happened over that four years, I think. Yeah. But it changed from... We need to do journalism, but it's going to be tilted to the left because we're, we happen to be liberal. To this is too important. Right. We can't hide behind the supposed responsibility to keep journalism intact. We must stop this at all costs. So the Hunter Biden thing happens. We're not even going to bring it up. Our audience isn't going to know. We're going to ban it across social media. We're going to do everything we can to make sure this bad guy does not become president again. Is that is that just is that perception right or wrong? I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, I think that they, they were so hurt by by what happened in 2016 and, and actually felt a, a feeling of guilt yeah. within the media that that we had something to do with this. You know, we gave him the coverage during the primary. If you think about like the empty podium on CNN, uh, that, you know, the interviews weren't hard enough. He became the nominee. And then we, we, we did the Hillary Clinton emails during the, the, uh, the general election. And we put him in office. And first of all, I have to say, I think that's, a, that's wrong. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that, that the media should blame themselves. I, I don't think it's their fault that he was elected uh, or their responsibility. And they should think, have been covering things of like course, the Hillary Clinton of, emails. Of course. And, and, and they, they overinflate their importance by, by, by claiming <laughs> it, they had something course, to do with yeah. it, to be honest. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that absolutely was the case. And, and I do think that you know, one of the things I lay out in the book is, is what, why do the media go off so far off the rails during the Trump administration. And I do think that there was something that was business related, right? He was great for business. Sure. You know, and so, so sure, we're going to spend all our resources on that. And it was personal. I mean, Jeff Zucker and Katie Couric and Gail King, they were all at his wedding in, 20, in 2005. It was not that long ago. Hmm. He was part of the media scene. He was hosting SNL in November 2015. Al Sharpton was taking selfies with him. You know, he was part of that scene and then he was this turncoat. So it was personal also. But I think it's absolutely what you're saying as well, where they felt certain people in this newsroom, not everybody, but a lot of people in the media believed that he was this existential threat to democracy. And then they had to save democracy. They were doing Watergate every single day on the air. And so to, to meet that, they were going to essentially abandon their principles. They were gonna just, the guardrails were off. We have to meet this moment. And I would argue that I completely disagree that he was this existential threat. But even if you believe that, those are the times when you need to double down on your principles. Those are the times when you say, okay, we need to convince the public of this. So the only way we're going to convince a large portion of people is to stick to our journalistic standards and principles and prove that out. Show it, don't tell it. And they went the opposite direction. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's funny because you wrote in the book about uh, everyone had their own personal Watergate every single day. Right. And it's like, I, I find that to be, you know, really an interesting way to look at it because People who get into the media, who decide to go into this line of work, see a romanticized version of the media, right? Like they see Watergate. They see, you know, the the Boston, uh, you know, uh, Catholic church scandals, all these big movies you watch. And and, and there's this romanticized thing where you're in parking garages and uh, you can't quite see the guy's face. And you're getting leaked information and trying to figure it out when so much of their job, 99.9 percent of their job is something totally different. They've got a PR person from, uh, you know, from the you know, a candidate's, uh, yeah. you know, a campaign who's just emailing them saying, this is what we want to get out here right now. How do we do this? And they're working together. And like some of that's not bad, but they want to be the people type of person who gets into this job and wants to do it this way, wants to be the type of person that uh, changes the world. 
there's good motivations in that, but it, it also can be a real problem because it, it winds up being almost an ideology rather than looking at the job as something that has real rules and principles. Exactly, and, and I think you, you put that on top of it, this, this idealistic idea of we're gonna save the world and we're gonna you know, break the biggest stories. And, become, and then you couple that with the incentive structure of social media now, right? Twitter mm -hmm. and the way that you can become a star not by changing the world, but by asking that really tough question. You know, I, there's a, a tell that I write about in the book is Journalism Tell, where a CBS reporter one time had this exchange. Uh, it was with, with the uh, Surgeon General during, the, during COVID, Trump's Surgeon General. And she asked him a really tough question, like a one minute long, really jab question. And then he answered. And she tweeted out her question and not his answer. <laughs> and you, you know, there's a tell right there. Yeah. If, you, if you care more about the question that you're asking than yeah. the, what the actual person in power is saying, then you're, you're thinking about it the completely opposite way of the way journalism is. But that's what gets a lot of retweets. That's what gets the, the new followers, right? And so when you couple that idealism with what happens on social media, the incentive to become essentially an influencer and a star, you can actually do that now through, by, through journalism, which, which never really was the case before. You weren't celebrities because of that. That's, that's a huge problem. That, that, that makes the incentives all, all out of whack. Yeah, you know, the Twitter part, you have a, a, a large chapter here about kind of Twitter and the effect on the media. I thought it was fascinating. I'm kind of a Twitter hater, even though yeah. I use it from time to time. I mean, there's, there's things I do like about it, right? But it, what I find often, and you reference in the book as well, is this sort of performative aspect of it. Uh, you have a great example in the book of someone who basically writes a news story in a tweet and then goes out. Can you tell the story where they go out and then they find the news story and then print it as if it's news? Yes, yes. This was uh, Astrid Herndon of the New York Times. Hmm. Uh, this was after the election um, when the new governor uh, was elected. Youngkin. Uh, yeah, Governor Young, uh, Youngkin was elected in, in 2021. And the night of the election, he tweets out this, this several tweet thread basically his incident analysis, which summed up was white grievance policies, politics. This mm -hmm. is what got the, this person elected. Not, of course, the, the lockdowns and the school closures and, and, and lots of reasons, really, why millions of people, I mean, you could look at the exit polls. There, not a lot of white grievance politics that was the answer, but that was his answer to it. Yeah. This is a news journalist. This is a guy on the, the, the objective journalism side. A few days later in the New York Times, he essentially writes that piece. He talks to 12 people on a border town on, between Virginia and West Virginia, white people, all about their grievance politics. He found the exact people that he was looking for, and he puts a news story out there. And it's a great example of this. It wasn't necessarily untrue what he published. It was he did talk to those people. They said those things to him. But you could tell because of Twitter, because of that open diary that he had, exactly the way he was going to go already. And so now, it got not, a, not through a column, but through a very top story in the New York Times, you get this perception of why you know the, the governor won that night that was totally baked in to a person's own political or ideological <laughs> perspective that was already out in the open. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and like as much as I don't like Twitter, that was an example of it, of the good parts of Twitter. Right, you see it. Because yeah. you see it. We, this had to be happening, obviously, before. You just never have any proof of it. You'd think, oh, this person's a liberal. He probably went out there and tried to find these people. This is really about as straight a line as you're ever going to see. 
He wrote the story before he wrote the story. Right. And that's supposed to be the opposite of what you do in journalism. Yeah, it is. And I think it actually works both ways, too, because uh, I talked to Sharon Waxman for the book, who owns The Wrap, uh, yeah. an, an entertainment and, and media news site. And she's described how her own reporters, there's this chilling effect of Twitter, where she's seen her reporters move away from a story, covering it a certain way, or even covering a story at all, because of their fear of what might happen to them on Twitter. And so, you know, Jeez. now all of a sudden you have, you have people that are making decisions about what stories they cover and how to cover them because of, of wanting to maintain the sort of acceptability that they have on Twitter. And that's, that's obviously a big problem. Mm. Let, let's, go to, uh, let's go to COVID for a minute. Yeah. Because I don't know if there's ever been a more depressing, um, you know, uh, display by the media than COVID. Obviously, it's one of the, it's, it's one of the you know, the stories that's going to form yeah. our lives, my kids' lives, your kids' lives. You have a situation here where the media immediately jumps to several different narratives. The lab leak theory is false. Uh, masks work incredibly well. Just put one on, you'll never get this thing. A bunch of different things like this. And they, they stake out this position despite really not having evidence yet. And it would be understandable in March and April of 2020 that they wouldn't have the evidence. They wouldn't understand these stories. As they develop, as other information comes out, as, you know, uh, Georgia, Brian Kemp and Ron DeSantis right. are not killing people. It's not the uh, uh, experiment in human sacrifice that we were told <laughs> yeah, about. The headline, really. Yeah, that was the headline for, for Georgia at the time. And there's never a moment where they step back and they say, wait a minute. We, we got this really wrong. We got all these things wrong. We need to fix these things. Wouldn't that be like a step in the right direction if they could get there? And how do you think all of all these improper steps began at the beginning? Yeah, I, well, I, and I, I write about it. I mean, the, there was the, the horrible spring break coverage uh, oh, yeah. in 2020. And then I write about in 2021, it was all over again. The, the, the outdoor, you know, super spreader events that were just people on the beach on spring break a year later. Obviously, we learned so much more since then. I, I think it really was was the geographic bias is a big part of, of, of this. And, and I also think you couple that with just Trump in office. If, if there was a different president in office, I wonder if the really terrible media coverage we got from COVID when it came to things like the lab leak theory, which suddenly became one side, became associated in some capacity with what Trump believed. And so, oh, dangerous. That, that, we have to just completely go the opposite direction. Um, Nate Silver, uh, who I, I, I cite several times positively in the book of, of ABC and, and 538, has this great tweet where he says, you know, with the lab leak theory, when there's two sides and there's experts on both sides and there's evidence on both sides, but only one side is concerned with policing the discourse. That's the side that's usually wrong. Mm. You know, and that's what we saw with the lab leak theory and so many of these stories on COVID. Yeah, there, there's, there's evidence on both sides, but only one wants to clamp down the conversation and censor and silence people and make it so that, that even you know, potential information doesn't get out there. What we saw with the Great Barrington Declaration, I talked to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of the way that the, not only the Dr. Fauci's of the world, but the media treated him, him as this pariah because of you know, trying to just have kind of the, against the lockdowns, you know, and, yeah. and a totally proven right you know, in, in what he said. So, so I, I think it was all of these things, Trump, it was a geographic bias being isolated and, and also a real fear of just this moment and then, and then they refuse to correct the record. You know, as, as you say, they, there is no, no 
incentive for them to go back and get it right now. They just move on to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. you mentioned Nate Silver, and, and there was a recent exchange he had on Twitter, which I thought was really fascinating, in which, you know, the, the, the DOE report comes out, they say, likely a lab leak uh, right. situation, you know, and he says, you know, this is, I, I will never forget this. I will never forget how some members of, of uh, I think he was specifically talking about scientists and doctors at this point, but also the media, um, handled this. I'll never forget it because they jumped to this one side saying the lab leak was BS and they put all their credibility on the line to disprove this. And then we find out later that maybe very well was true. And I think it was, was it Media Hassan who yeah. responded to this. And I thought it was fascinating because it was really honest, which was, let's be honest about it. Look, the reason why we didn't cover it was because Trump was conflating this with other conspiracy theories. And, you know, we just saw him as being, you know, a bad messenger and we decided not to look into it. That's a terrible answer. Right. right? Yeah. It's very honest, but it's a terrible answer. Yes. Appreciate the honesty. Yes. Yeah. That's the that's the argument you make if you're an activist. Mm-hmm. And, and I would right. say at some point when it comes to COVID, I really would have hoped even the activists would think there's a, a higher purpose here. We need to, to not be going to our activist corners, but certainly as a member of the media, of the supposedly objective press that's supposed to serve the people, that should not come into the equation at all. That's <laughs> like, that, that should be completely out of it. And Mehdi Hassan, obviously an MSNBC host, that should not be entering the picture there. But I, I think it is 100% true. You know, that that conflation about it is, is, is where we saw it. I, I talked to Josh Rogan of the Washington Post, who's done incredible That's reporting great. on the lab leak theory and other elements of COVID and, and specifically China. And, you know, he said, he points to that entirely. I mean, he says, you know, you had these science writers that were completely spun by their sources and the media that was in no rush to get anything, you know, factually right because of the Trump involvement in all of it. And and the bias that they had for lots of reasons led to this this horrible coverage and no no interest in, in correcting it. Hmm. Yeah, well, we, I think we've covered it, that the media sucks. Um, I want to get to uh, how to make it better because that's a good part of what you talk about in the book. You always say, uh, I don't hate the media, I love the media, and I want to make it better. And it's like, I, I like that instinct. I mean, <laughs> at times I can't say it out loud, yeah. but I, I like the instinct. Uh, let's get back more with Steve Krakauer here in a second. The book is Uncovered. Back with more with Steve in a second. back with more with uh, Steve Krakauer. The book is uncovered. You should pick it up right now, wherever books are sold. Steve, one of the things that you did really well in the book, I thought, was you take us through some of the biggest media narratives over the past, you know, I don't know, decade. Um, Everything from Hunter Biden to COVID and all these big things. And then you also sort of pull out several that I kind of forgotten about, you know, little things that bubble up and they're the controversy of the day for a week or so. And we never really hear the resolution of it. One of the one of the issues was Sharon Osbourne. Yeah, uh, the, the, this sto- this arc seems completely unfair to Sharon Osbourne. Uh, can you walk people through the story and how it resolved? Yeah, it was a brief moment, but I, I do tell it because I do think it illustrates a lot of what's wrong with the, with the media in many ways. It kind of this guilt journalism that we see. Sharon was Piers Morgan made some comments about Meghan Markle. This was way back when before between back when everyone liked Meghan Markle, right. and so you know everyone's <laughs> learned that it's not true. She defended Piers to say, "Oh, you know, he's not a racist." Essentially, is what she said, and then she got in trouble for daring to defend Piers Morgan. And on her show, she essentially got attacked on on this her CBS show, The Talk 
by a couple of her co-hosts on the air. You know, why is she defending this? Doesn't she know that maybe she's sort of endorsing racism? And then pretty, pretty soon after she was fired. Well, a couple weeks later, the Daily Mail gets this leaked audio of what happened after that segment in her dressing room when one of those co-hosts, Elaine Welteroth, who is a black woman, uh, described to Sharon that I'm, re- I'm just really apologetic about what happened. And what she said to Sharon, she said, I, I don't even know what you tweeted. I, but her whole point was, I have to say this because I might get attacked by people on Twitter. And, and I have to go this route because, you know, it's unfair, it's unfair to you, it's unfair to me, but this is the way things are now, and so I have to do it. <laughs> that, what Admitting admit, that she yes. didn't even really mean the criticism. Didn't mean the criticism, didn't even really know what she was talking didn't about. Didn't think she was racist. You know, she's like, I'm not a DEI expert, what do I know? Right. So, so she literally is saying this is what's in her head, but she can't feel empowered to say those things or to defend her friend or, not even, or just to say, I don't know, let's move on to a different topic. No, she has to do this because that's the way the incentive structure is now. And that's the, kind of this, this guilt that has been brought out by social media and other incentives. And, and, it's, and, and they're not strong enough. The people on the air, the people that are in the C-suites are not strong enough to hold straight to their convictions. Yeah, it's weird. In some ways, like you think this era of social media and everyone can express themselves, even people who didn't usually do it, right. would, would empower people to actually say their own opinions. And I feel like it's actually done the opposite in so many, in so many ways. Yes. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Hunter Biden uh, situation as well. You, you know, you talk about it often in the book. And, and, and I think as we're getting into solutions here, one of the things that I keep coming back to is if the media would just take responsibility for their really big and obvious mistakes. Hunter Biden is a great example. Would Hunter Biden have changed the election? I don't know. Maybe it yeah. might have. I mean, it was a pretty big story and uh, certainly lots of questions about it. But the fact that they went so far against it, basically called it propaganda and said it was terrible. It, it, oddly, at the very beginning, in some ways I can understand it, right? Like I, I started putting myself in the other position, right? If uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s laptop somehow found, found its way to Gloria Allred uh, right. 10 days before the election, I, I would be highly skeptical of it. Yeah. I would still want to know what the truth was, but I would be highly skeptical. I can understand the skepticism at first, but considering they went so far to not even cover it, not give both sides, um, uh, target anyone who mentioned it, ban them from social media, if all they did was just come back afterward and say, holy crap, guys, we realize uh, in this one, you were right. We were totally wrong on this. Here are the steps we've taken to try to get better. And here's how we're going to make sure it doesn't happen next time. If they had that public moment, I, I was thinking of it like Domino's Pizza did, right? Where they were like, <laughs> hey, our pizza used to suck. and We understand why you don't order it. We've improved it, though. Try it. And they it have, worked. For, yeah. Yeah, it is actually better. Yeah. Um, it, it worked for them, yes. right? It wasn't just ducking and hiding and covering. No, they yeah. decided to make a public statement of contrition, and that went a long way to Domino's credibility. Wouldn't this work for the media? I, well, it absolutely would work. I, I do think that that showing mistakes and, and admitting your mistakes would go a long way. But I think part of the reason they don't do that is not just that they didn't cover it or they covered it in the wrong way and they can admit that. It was that they bought into the idea of censoring the New York Post. I, I write about yeah. this. I, when I went back and started to go through all this for the book, I, I just... All of these things I even forgot about. Jake Sherman, who's now at Punchbowl, this normal reporter, pretty quiet guy, he linked to the New York Post, said, I wonder if the Biden campaign is going to respond to this one, linked to the article, got pilloried for it, got banned by Twitter because, of course, you couldn't share the link at the time. And so what did he do in that moment? He deleted his tweet and he apologized on Twitter for daring to link to the New York Post. And mm-hmm. he said, I, you know, I'll be better. You know, 
the, uh, full of misspellings. I mean, just just panicked. <laughs> panicked. He, was, he lost his Twitter account. <laughs> yeah, and, and he had, his life was over. These people didn't jump to the New York Post defense. Even if you don't want to link to the New York Post, you have to defend the New York Post, your colleagues in the media in this moment that are being completely and unnecessarily censored in unprecedented ways by Twitter. They didn't do that. They bought into the censorship. And that's why I think it's even worse than just getting it wrong. They believe that it should have been completely suppressed. And it's, it's hard to apologize for that. They're, that's yeah. just saying I, I completely got my principles wrong. Right. And part of me thinks, and this is the dark part of me, I admit, but part of me thinks that like the reason why they're not contrite in these moments is because they actually got what they want out of them, right? right? Like, yes, they, they, they're a little embarrassed later on, but Donald Trump's not the president. That was the goal. In a lot of ones, in a lot of cases, I think that that's, that's true. You know, the ends justify the means, which is, which is really sad. So what can the media do to actually improve the situation, to yeah. make half the country trust them again. I, I, it's gonna take a lot. I, I think that I do, in the last chapter of the book, lay out some potential solutions. Um, I will say, you know, the, the bulk of the book, though, is because I really don't think the corporate press is going to change anytime soon. I would rather just lay out all the cards on the table, cut through the BS and mm. say, at least let's, as a country, get on the same page about what happened and why it happened, so we don't need the corporate press anymore at all. But if they were to listen, I think that they, you talk about correcting your mistakes, Ombudsman, public editors, that used to be a big thing. There used to be one of the New York Times. These are people inside in, in the organizations who can call out those organizations, who can be a check, who can be the public's voice in these organizations. Mm -hmm. They're pretty much gone. I think that would make a huge difference. And then, of course, geography. I mean, getting out of the Acela corridor, I mean, literally hiring journalists to not just move from Alabama to New York, but to live exactly where they are and do their jobs one of the good things about COVID is we've seen work from home as a possibility. I think we need more national organizations, national giant media organizations to have reporters that are out in the field, that just live there and live among the people. That will do a huge difference. And especially if these are people who don't have journalism degrees, maybe don't have degrees at all, and are just curious people that can do good work, not trying to be stars. That would make a difference. I hope that happens. Yeah, I, I, that would make a big difference. I think too, like having people who... I'm not, who are sensible, right? right, that are on the other side and have a different perspective that can call you out. I mean, you mentioned the ombudsman, which is more of like an independent role typically. Yeah. I almost wonder if at this point they should make an effort to have someone who's that leans to the right. You know, I remember watching CNN back in the 2015-16 cycle, and you, you talked to Kaylee McEnany on, yeah. uh, in your book, um, and she talks about how it was, it was basically, I thought her and Jeffrey Lord like bought the network at one point. They were on like 24 oh, yeah. hours a day because they were the only two people that they could find that would talk positively about Donald Trump. At least they made an effort to put someone on the air right. that would say something positive about Trump. Um, but They've now it's almost like once the Trump thing happened, they said, well, we're never going to find anybody. We can't we can't take that side seriously. That side is Trump and Trump is bad. Just having someone who could help the media differentiate the difference between a blatant Trump lie right. and something he's saying that is actually based on truth that they should take seriously and have a debate on like just that. That little thing would make such a difference. Totally. I, look, CNN hired Selena Zito coming out of the 2016 election yeah. because they realized that they were missing something, and she knew the Trump phenomenon coming on. I talked to Selena. She basically said that within a couple months, they were not just asking her, what do Trump voters think? They were asking her, why do they think this? Why would they mm -hmm. believe that? She's like, I don't know. I'm a reporter. What are you asking me about? And, <laughs> so, and then she was sidelined for, for years. The, yeah. the length of her contract just sat out there. That's someone who's not a partisan, but someone who cares about the, the, the average American in the, the country, people who voted for Trump and can explain these sorts of things. 
That was a bridge too far, apparently, for that that old era of CNN. Amazing. Uh, Selena, more reporters like Selena would be honestly a great step in the right direction. Steve Krakauer, the book is uh, called Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and lost the people. It's available now wherever you get your book. I can't recommend it enough because I mean, we talk about the media all the time. It's important to stop and actually look at these things after with a little bit of uh, perspective and be able to analyze this stuff and understand where these things have gone and why they've gone in this direction. Steve, it's a great book. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, too. Appreciate it. You know, years ago, uh, Steve Krakauer was here at The Blaze uh, for a time, and uh, you know, we loved having him here, of course. Um, it's interesting, though, when we talk about how to fix the media, what you're doing right now is one of the big pieces of that. Actually, The Blaze was started really for this reason, to try to do something to push back against the mainstream media machine, to make it, to make all of it better, make the coverage better, make the information that got to you better, make the country better. Uh, if you have the means, we highly appreciate you joining the movement. BlazeTV.com slash stew is the place to go to do that. Join Blaze TV. Help us in our mission. It's BlazeTV.com slash stew. The promo code is stew. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday.